apologize. We also have two missionaries from Guatemala here this morning, and they are at, yeah, you can clap for them too. I just met, is it Barry and Marquita? I just met them this morning, and, uh, and you guys go to Gary Hamrick's Church, Cornerstone Chapel, which is up in Northern Virginia, another Calvary Chapel. So, so glad to have you guys with us. As I was telling them this morning, when I met with Pastor Jorge Bustamante down in Fort Lauderdale about our own short-term mission trips, the two that we kind of zeroed in on were Guatemala and El Salvador. Now, George is from El Salvador, and you guys are from, or you're ministering in Guatemala, so we have two different uh, biases here, uh, Guatemala versus El Salvador. We uh, will pray and see where the Lord sends us, but uh, good to have you guys with us. Now turn in your Bibles. If you're here visiting, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand now. We'd be really glad to get one in your hand. If you need a Bible, uh, raise your hand and we'll make sure you have one. Uh, today will be a continuation of our verse-by-verse study of the book of Luke. As I mentioned, next Sunday, it'll be Christmas-focused. Uh, when I say Christmas-focused, I mean the Christmas story-focused, uh, some uh, relation to Jesus' coming into the earth. My message title next week will be, The Light Still Shines. Uh, the Light Still Shines. That'll be next Sunday, but uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Uh, we'll pick up where we left off and start the 19th chapter of Luke, making our way uh, I'm in prayer now about, you know, we're getting to uh, close to the end of the book of Luke. Uh, there's only 24 chapters. We're starting the 19th chapter. Where will we go next? Uh, I don't know yet. I've got a couple of books that are on my heart. Uh, so you'll know soon. As soon as I know, you'll know soon after. But uh, we've still got a little ways to go in the book of Luke. But Luke chapter 19, just verting, reading uh, verses 1 through 10. Luke 19, verses 1 through 10, starting with verse 1. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. I always like the way Luke just simplifies things. You know, he, he talks about there, and you know, he was, remember the rich young ruler? Luke says, um, and he walked away sad because he was rich. Luke kind of realized that riches really is a huge stumbling block to people giving and surrendering their lives, Lord. But nevertheless, he says, this tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was short of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today... I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He is gone to be guest with a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. If I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today, Salvation has come to this house because he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Let's pray again. Lord, we just pray for the anointing of your word and the opening of our eyes and ears and hearts. And Lord, that we would hear directly from you by your Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Some of you may remember, I don't know, some of you didn't go to church when you were kids, uh, and I understand that, but some of you did. You may remember... The, the Sunday school song, it went, went like this. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up into the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Remember that one? We still, I think our kids still sing it over there. Um, I tried to find the author of who wrote that. I, I could not find any documentation of who wrote the song. All I could find was that it's listed as a traditional children's song traditional children's Christian song. Uh, how many that are over 60 were singing it when you were a kid? I, I just want to know how far this goes back. I'm not going to go any higher than that age uh, because then I could get into another round of trouble. But uh, nevertheless, so I saw some hands over 60. So this song goes far back. Uh, my guess is today, with, with the political correctness of today, it would not be written, was a wee little man. You know, there might be some other language used. Uh, so he was a vertically challenged individual or something <laughs> Uh, something to that nature. 
Um, it doesn't have the same ring to it when you say a vertically challenged individual. It doesn't even rhyme that good when you do it that way. But, uh, but the kids remember it. And Zacchaeus, he certainly was uh, short. This, you know, Luke was a doctor. So Luke was always documenting things very uh, articulately and uh, you know, makes note of why he's climbing up in a tree. It wasn't just because he loved tree climbing and things like that, but uh, to make sure that he understood he was of short stature. Uh, but he wasn't short on cash. Luke tells us clearly that uh, cash wasn't his issue. Height? Yeah, he could use some more height. If he wanted to play in the NBA, that was going to be a problem, but they didn't have the NBA then. But anyway, uh, he had no issue with uh, as far as what was in his wallet. Had plenty there. Uh, as the Bible describes him, he was rich, very rich. And as a chief tax collector uh, under the Roman rule, he was responsible for the taxes on people individually, uh, those individual taxes, uh, as well as the goods and materials that would travel via trade through Judea, so uh, and through the Roman province here, Jericho, uh, in the southern part of Israel and Judah, uh, in the Judea area, uh, he would be responsible for all the goods being taxed on those goods going through, as well as uh, the individual taxes. His role encouraged corruption. That was not a problem to the Roman government. If you were a tax collector, uh, the role itself encouraged corruption, uh, as he was uh, free to add additional tax. Uh, to the required tax, and that would be his own personal profit. He could make accusations. It would be backed up by the Roman military if he made an accusation against you. Uh, well, you know, I don't know how much has changed today. When the IRS makes an accusation against you, uh, it, it's not a fun thing, is it? You know, we have many commercials now we see. Does the IRS have a lien on you? All these kind of things. And so uh, tax collection uh, has been a personal, uh, I, I would say it has been a sticking point with civilization for a long time, but compounded by the fact that uh, when you actually have Roman officials that are actually gaining over and above what, you know, if there was some specific tax and they're actually asking for more, then it becomes all the more painful for those that are uh, on the short end of this. And he was no doubt an organized individual, an efficient individual, probably good with numbers for those of you that like math or accounting. Uh, very motivated, probably very career motivated. Now, a number of those things are, are what we call strengths. There's nothing wrong with efficiency. There's nothing wrong with being good with numbers. Nothing wrong with being you know, very organized. Matter of fact, we really need people like that. We need them in this church. Your workplace needs them. Your home needs them. Those are strengths. But he also had some weaknesses. He was dishonest. Uh, he was ruthless. He did not care uh, or have compassion for people. These were uh, the aspects of his life uh, that, that Jesus would have seen in his heart. And he was despised by his fellow Jews. His fellow Jews, uh, they considered him to be a traitor uh, to his lineage, to his <coughs> Abrahamic lineage. <coughs> he had everything that you could possibly want materially. But what was in his soul? Well, that... You can't buy materially, can you? You can buy everything else materially. What was in his heart and what was in his soul. Uh, and he didn't have any idea uh, who he was actually created to be. Someone wrote, once wrote, the dilemma of an unclear sense of personal identity was illustrated by an incident in the life of the famous German philosopher, uh, let me see if I can say this right, Schleimacher, who did much to shape the progress of modern thought. The story is told one day when an old man, he was sitting alone on a bench in a city park, and a policeman, thinking that he was a vagrant, came over and shook him and said, Who are you? Schleimacher replied, Sadly, I wish I knew. Isn't that so many people still today? If you were to ask, Who are you? Now, they might have an answer, but deep inside... They'd probably have to agree with Schleimacher, I really wish I knew who I was. Well, Zacchaeus, he's, a, he's going to find out who Jesus is. And folks, when in the process of life we find out who Jesus is and his identity, we can find out who we are or who we were created to be. And by believing in Jesus and trusting in Jesus, 
he'll find out who God intends him to be. If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word, Accepted by the Son. Accepted by the Son. We'll look at six observations from the text. I'm not going to enumerate them now, just go through them one by one. If you're taking notes, you can write them down. The first one I want to start off with is recognition. Recognition. Uh, you know, before anything ever happens, you've got you to realize, you've got to have your eyes open, you've got to see things for how they really are. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, you don't want to measure something in the dark. You want to know exactly what you're looking at and understand, and that's where you're able to make a decision. That, that, uh, everything in the scriptures brings us to a valley of decision. And so Zacchaeus, you know, he, he, living there in Jericho, has tons of money, may not have much in the way of friends, but he's got money. He's got the things that you want material, all the things that everyone else would love to have. I mean, if he was alive today, he'd be the first one to have the new iPhone. He would be, have the largest flat screen. He would have the built-in pool. He would have all the things that you want, the three-car garage, not the two-car garage, maybe the four-car garage, all these kind of things, all the new stuff. He has all these things. And he might be thinking to himself, I have all this money. I have loads of money. I have a secure job. You work for the Roman government, that's job security. They rule with an iron fist. He's working for the strongest organization on planet Earth at that time, perhaps in the history of the world. So he's working with great job security, and something's still wrong. Something is still lacking. You know, people you know, even right now, here in, De- here in the month of December, Christmas parties, holiday parties, all the things that are going on, people that you know... They may not say it, but they know something's still lacking in their life. They may not say a word about it. They might act like everything is perfect. They might have a big smile at the Christmas party this coming week. All those kind of things, but something is still lacking. Whether they say it or not, it's deep within them. Perhaps Zacchaeus felt lonely. and Other people wouldn't feel sorry for him, but that doesn't mean that he may not himself have felt lonely. The community may not have cared. They would say, hey, you got money. Why? Who cares if you're lonely? Get anything you want. Maybe he felt guilty for his lifestyle compared to the Jewish brethren that were his own flesh and blood around him. The ones that he collected taxes from, even took more than he should. He may have felt convicted about his callous heart. You know, even before you were saved, remember you'd still have those moments of conviction you didn't know the Lord. I, I remember. I was not saved, but I still at times would do something and think, that isn't good. You'd feel that conviction in your heart. It's good when you still can feel. It's really bad when people feel no conviction. That's how we end up with serial killers and all kinds of things where people say, man, it seemed like they had no conscience. Yeah, that you can actually sear the conscience to a certain level that people don't have a conscience anymore. But perhaps he felt convicted of his dishonesty and the way he dealt with people and the way he dealt with money. Maybe he just felt empty, just completely empty. You know, we see this sometimes. We see this, you know, we, we see every time you walk in the newsstand, there's another celebrity on the, on the cover of us or people and some baggage in their life about how they're, uh, they're needing to detox or they're, uh, they've been battling depression or something like that, just an emptiness, even by having it all, having nothing all at the same time. Maybe he felt condemned, knowing that a just God, I mean, he would have raised, he was Jewish, he was Hebrew, he would have been raised hearing the things that the rabbis would say. Maybe he felt condemned, knowing that someday he was going to give an account for his life. Condemnation. Remember the rich young ruler, he came to Jesus in the previous chapter, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Because he wanted, he wanted to know, hey, I, I, I want to go to heaven. When I get there, I want to have the answer of, come on in. Maybe he felt condemned. Maybe he thought of all the commandments in the Old Testament under the law that he had broken. Thinking about those commandments and realizing that he was a lawbreaker. Maybe he heard, maybe this, maybe he heard about the people that he thought were, were the real wretches. You know, everyone thinks of someone else as worse than them. You ever notice that? Everyone always looks at somebody else and says, and that person, if anyone needs Jesus, it's them, right? Maybe he was thinking of all the people that were really the wretches and then realizes, but they've been radically changed. 
Because if you're a tax collector, chief tax collector, you meet a lot of people. You travel a lot of circles, and you see people that used to be one way, and you hear, what happened with that person? Oh, they met this guy named Jesus of Nazareth. Hopefully that is told about you in the workplace or in your neighborhood. Whatever happened? Why is so-and-so so different now? They used to be such a jerk. And all the meetings, they're actually nice now. They actually write cards on you know, administrative Insistent day and do things they think of people more now. Oh, they, yeah, well, they, they found religion. That's usually what they'll say of you, by the way. They, not, they don't like to use terms that actually will convict themselves, but some will might say, yeah, they're a born again, whatever that is, to become that way. But he had maybe observed people that had been changed, that had been radically changed. No doubt, regardless of what he was feeling, there was some level of just simple curiosity. Can you imagine being on the earth at the time of Jesus walking the earth? If, if you, you know, sometimes I try and take myself back in time. If you really were there over 2,000 years ago and you hear about this man from Nazareth, what's going on with it? Well, everywhere he goes, he raises people up that have been you know, uh, lame for life. He heals blind people. He heals the deaf. He casts demons out of people. He heals people radically. Oh, and by the way, he says he can forgive people of their sins. How do the religious leaders take that? They're in... They're irate. They're furious about it. But some level of curiosity. Who is Jesus? What's he all about? Why is this crowd following them? I remember last week in the previous chapter, you know, you have yet the blind beggar there, and he hears a crowd following Jesus. Zacchaeus can see the crowds that are following. Why is this man who has no wealth followed by so many? No one wanted to follow Zacchaeus. Why is this man who has all this uh, money feeling so disconnected and he sees all these people wanting to connect to Jesus? There's something about Jesus he's probably thinking, I need to see it for myself. Didn't you, in your own life, get to the place where you needed to see for yourself? Not what somebody else was thinking, but you needed the scriptures to make sense. You needed to hear from the Lord. You needed to know, was this actually true? Secondhand testimony won't always do, will it? It's a good starting point. But you need to personally hear the voice of Jesus and possibly see his face. Let's look at the next point if you're taking notes. We looked at recognition. He recognizes something, either in himself or what is about Jesus. Let's look at the next point, resolve. Resolve. He, he resolves to put everything else aside and sets out to go and find a way to see the Lord. It says in the text here, after we hear who he was in verse 3, and he sought to see Jesus, who Jesus was, who Jesus was, that simple thing, underline your butt, he sought who Jesus was. The whole world still needs to see who Jesus is, but could not because of the crowd, too many people, and he was short. You know, it's never fun to go somewhere where you can't see. You ever been to a parade, and you're like eight rows back? You might as well not even be there, Right? The person up front is telling you, oh, that's a beautiful float. What does it look like? You know, you, the best you do now is you can hold your smartphone as high as you can, hopefully get a picture of it. It's, it's not a good second option, right? Uh, you might as well stay home. And if you're at, you know, people wait forever to get the Macy's parade. And you say, and then you get Matt Lauer. These people have been out here since 4 a.m. Well, if they are not getting a front row seat, I don't want to be down there, right? Because you can't see anything. You're standing like this. It's freezing cold. You might as well be at home relaxing with a piece of coffee cake or something, watching it on TV, than to try and see it from a distance. But he couldn't see because of his short stature, unable to see above the crowd. But he still wants to figure out a way. How can I see Jesus myself? So he runs ahead, gets ahead of the crowd, verse 4, climbs up to the sycamore tree so he can see the Lord himself. You know, when you finally come to the realization that you need to find Jesus, you'll make it a priority. When people finally come to the realization that they need to find out who Jesus is, to see him for themselves, they will make it a priority. We make everything else in life a priority, but when we finally decide, I got to get a glimpse, I got to know for myself. So you get a glimpse of Jesus became more important to Zacchaeus at this point than his daily life, than his routines, than his schedule. 
So many people, don't, don't mess with my schedule. Jesus will mess with your schedule. You know that? He has a right to mess with our schedule. And it's going to be really good for us when he messes with our schedule, isn't it? Uh, um, my wife was listening to a teaching. She was sharing it with me, uh, one of the pastors on the West Coast. She was talking about the fact that Jesus was never busy or hurried. You realize that? We, we constantly are. But the things that really matter to Zacchaeus at this point, he's able to move them aside to get a glimpse of the Lord, and he runs ahead. Verse tells us he runs up ahead of the crowd. Now, in the Eastern world, this was not something that men did. They didn't like run around. That was, that was considered very not classy. And especially men of wealth and roles of responsibility, they did not run. You would walk at a nice slow pace. That, that showed some level of dignity. But he doesn't care what anyone thinks at this point. He's resolved to see Jesus. And out of necessity, he climbs a sycamore tree. Uh, it's children that climb trees all over the world still today. Our kids in this church love to climb trees. They'll climb anything out there, but uh, trees will, will do if they're there. Uh, but not men and men of riches and esteem, especially not in the ancient world. They did not climb trees. But uh, Jesus had already said that one, unless one becomes like a little child, remember he said that? Unless one becomes like a little child, they cannot see the kingdom of God. And so we kind of see a picture here uh, of Zacchaeus acting a little childlike, literally running climbing a tree, acting a little childlike, and there's a little bit of spiritual gleaning we can get from that, that a little bit of acting childlike is always going to be necessity because Jesus said that. You have to become like a little child if you want to see him for who he is. Amen? So he becomes a little childlike. The spiritual type of his heart becoming softened. When people are softened, they, they start to not care what everyone thinks because they say, I just got to get to the Lord. I need to find out where am I really at? Who is he and who am I? Children, just like Zacchaeus, they're not guarding their reputation, are they? This is what, adult, this is what adults do nonstop. They're always guarding their reputation. Right? But Jesus sees us how we really are, not what our reputation says we are. Warren Wearsby, Pastor Warren Wearsby said, perhaps more than anything else, it is pride that keeps successful people from trusting in Jesus. I'll read that one more time. Perhaps more than anything else, it is pride that keeps successful people from trusting in Christ. When we get to heaven, well, we won't see it, but the Lord will see it. Uh, God will reveal how many people always knew it was all true, believed every word of it, but pride, they said, I don't want anyone to see me become like child. And receive Jesus. And so they would actually hold on to their pride and their stuff while falling under the condemnation of eternity separated from the Lord. Let's look at the third thing, rescue. We looked at recognition, we looked at resolve, we looked at rescue. Now, Jesus, it reminds me of um, if somebody goes down and, uh, you know, kind of like that Tom Hanks movie, he ends up on an island. Remember that one? Uh, FedEx worker. Um, but you know, if you ended up on some desert out and you're setting up smoke signals, you're setting up smoke signals uh, hoping that someone will find you, the goal is that, uh, that there would be some sort of rescue airplane or helicopter would zero in and come down and rescue you. And the same would be true if someone would drown in the sea and, they, and they're, they're down to something, clinging to a piece of driftwood, flapping their arms in the air, that someone would come to their rescue. And the good news is, Jesus never misses those signals. Never misses those signals. If anyone has ever waved their hand in the water, please rescue me, he'll come. If anyone's ever put up a smoke signal, he'll come. If anyone's ever put up an SOS or written it on sand on the beach, he will come. Isn't that great to know? He doesn't miss those signals. The Coast Guard has missed, you know, you'll hear the stories. Yeah, planes rode over me like eight times. And a period of two weeks, and I thought that finally, someone finally spotted me, but Jesus doesn't miss those things. He'll see exactly the one individual, one person that's hardest off, and he will come and rescue them. That was Jesus' ministry. His whole ministry was a rescue mission to the earth. 
It still is. It's what he's doing with us. It's what he did then. Little does Zacchaeus know that although he was looking for Jesus, Jesus was looking for him. Isn't that great? Jesus said, you didn't seek me, so the disciples, but I sought you. When we started looking for Jesus, it was only a response that he was already looking for us. Zacchaeus did not know that as Jesus was passing through Jericho, Jesus had on his itinerary, get, Isaac, get Zacchaeus, secure him, bring him into the kingdom, and later that day, that would be off the checklist. That's what he had come to do. For Jesus, everywhere he went was a rescue mission. It kind of teaches us that everywhere we go, in the back of our minds... And in our disposition in life, we should be on a rescue mission. Amen? We should be mindful that we're called to be the same. We're not the ones that can rescue them, but we sure can throw out the life preserver to the one who secures that life preserver. We're to be doing the same thing. The world and people in general, they don't know they need to be rescued. They're not sending out SOS signals. They're not writing it on the sand of the beach because they don't know they need to be rescued. Until finally the Holy Spirit begins to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. That's what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do when he came. Some uh, are more like they're floating down a river and a raft having no idea that a steep falls is coming. That's the way most people are. They don't know they need to be rescued. If you tried to yell to somebody that was canoeing before they got to Niagara Falls and they, didn't know, they never heard of Niagara Falls, just follow me on this. Anyway, but they're going down there and they don't know about it, you're telling them, you need to get out, we need to rescue. No, we're having a leisurely time in the canoe. Well, you won't be shortly. They don't know they need to be rescued. So Jesus is also reaching out to people that don't know. and any, They have no comprehension of the fact that they need the Lord. They're unaware. Zacchaeus, though, he had some level, and again, the Holy Spirit moving, or, or the Lord moving through the crowds, through the guilt, through the anxiety, through the discontent, maybe all the above. He has some level of thirst now. Some level of spiritual thirst to find out who Jesus is. So he resolves, he climbs that tree, and now he's got a vantage point. He can see Jesus, perhaps hear from Jesus. Jesus knows what we need to do long before we ever do it. He knows we need to climb the tree. He knows we need to become like a child long before we ever get to that place because he's coming to rescue us. Let's look at the uh, next point, resistance. So he gets, in, he gets up in the sycamore tree, and Jesus uh, comes and says, uh, Zacchaeus, he looks up, stops right where he's at. You know, Jesus walking along, knows everything, knows the tree. I'll stop right here, looks up. I need to come down. Come down, make haste, for today I must stay at your house. Now, we want to look at uh, how he responds in just a minute, uh, but that what, uh, what else takes place here? He comes down, and he makes haste, receives him joyfully, verse 6. But when they saw it, the crowd led by the religious leaders, this is uh, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders of that day, they all complain, saying he's gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. I want to look at the resistance first, and then we'll look at Zacchaeus' response in our, in our final two points this morning. Um, when Jesus makes a rescue attempt, there will also always be people firing at the rescue attempt. That makes sense? When, when our military drops in with special forces to extract a soldier who has been gunned down, there will be people shooting at them on the way down, the way in, and the way out. And this happens whenever the Lord seeks to pull someone out of this world and into the family of God, into relationship, into salvation. There will always be people there to sabotage the rescue attempt. Guaranteed. The religious hypocrites found somebody that they liked even less than the tax collectors. Guess who it was? Jesus. They didn't like tax collectors. We still don't seem to appreciate them today either. But they definitely did not like tax collectors, and, and a Jewish tax collector was the bottom of the barrel. That was lower than the low. It was bad enough if you had a Roman tax, but Jewish tax collector, and Rome's general practice was to take people from the different societies in which they had 
um, they had gained control and used their own people to be the conduit to their own people. In theory, that's a good theory, as long as those people are acting on the best interest of the people, but when they're not, then you actually have Jewish citizens hating these Jewish tax collectors with intense hatred. But they found someone they hated more than tax collectors. They hated Jesus more than Zacchaeus. Because Jesus represented someone who said he was equal to God, someone who said he could forgive sins, and someone that said that he himself was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. If you think people don't like you, just remember what they think about Jesus. Because if you're going to follow him, you're going to inherit some of that resistance. There's going to be a resistance to you because Jesus said it's not you that they hate, it's me that they hate, me being him. This is why there's such rage that fuels ISIS, such rage that fuels the North Korean government, such rage that fuels atheism to say these just crazy things. Because Jesus always creates a resistance. Because who is it that's the prince of the power of the air that's behind the scenes? Well, it's Satan himself. I've mentioned this, I mentioned some, some of this week. If Jesus, if Satan tried to directly tempt, attack, and discourage Jesus, guess what he will do with us? All the same thing. Tempt, distract, discourage. Always. Anything he did... Anything Satan did to the Lord, he will do to us as well. There will always be someone that's annoyed when someone else comes to Christ. You know, when, if someone in this room is, is unsaved and they come to the Lord, the family may not enjoy you as much next Christmas than they do now. They might like the jokes you tell now more than the stories about Jesus you tell next year. Interesting? Now, those of you that serve in the foreign mission field, we've got two, two of you that do, you know that some of the families would rather have some son or daughter that is addicted to drugs, that is violent, that is this, that, and the other, than a clean, sober, Christ-loving, believing son or daughter. True? They get that, that they get very upset about. And so they were upset that Jesus was in their city, upset the things that he, you know, not... Not all the crowd followed, but again, these are the religious leaders. These are the ones that are going to stir up the crucifixion. These are the ones that are going to try and pin all the problems of the people on Jesus. There's always going to be a resistance to the work of the Lord. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, 51, said, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit just as your fathers did, so do you. Just as your father, that resistance... Christian, we need to have soft hearts, not resistant hearts. We were resistant enough before salvation, but even after salvation, we can still find a little bit of resistance in us, can't we? I was reading just yesterday uh, at the last chapter, uh, last chapter of Mark, um, and uh, you know the next Luke chapter one starts uh, what would be stories about the birth of Christ. But in the last chapter of Mark, after Jesus raised from the dead. Um, and Jesus rebukes the disciples for their unbelief and their hardness of heart. Even those of us that believe in the Lord, we can still have resistance too. We need to guard against it to see, Lord, where am I being resistant? Let's look at the last two points here. The first of the last two, repentance. Uh, the, uh, we see the response of Zacchaeus. Jesus calls him, verse 6, he comes down with haste and receives him joyfully. Now, do we receive Christ, or does Christ receive us? Yes. Do we receive him, or does he receive us? Anytime anyone asks you about that theological conundrum, just say yes. It works both ways. We do receive him into our life, but ultimately he receives us into himself. We're baptized into Christ by the work of of the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit's not yet given upon the church yet, but again, the Holy Spirit's still working already. And Jesus and John, when they both started their ministry, what did they both start preaching? Repent, repent, repent for the kingdom of his hand. John started first, Jesus picks up the torch, picks it up, and he says, repent for the kingdom of God's at hand. To turn completely, not a slight modification of life, 
lot of people have tried slight modification of life. You can modify, you can clean up your life, and you'll still go to hell. That's not what repentance is. Uh, you can put some money in the plate, right? Uh, you can go into a confessional and give the priest a few things that, hey, uh, is this okay? I want to confess these things. None of those things are the marks of repentance. Those are works. None of those things will bring salvation. What does repentance really look like? Well, Zacchaeus comes immediately down. He obeys the voice of the Lord. He receives him joyfully. That's a good indication. His belief, his joy, his obedience to Christ, all those are good, good marks of genuine repentance. But it's turning from self to follow Christ. It's turning from ourself to follow Lord. It's forsaking the sins that used to come so natural to us that, that we've so long enjoyed and been in bondage to. And sometimes it's, it's both, right? Some of the sins that people are in, they really are in bondage to, and they wish they could get out of them, right? You, you meet people around the world that are, that are stuck in certain sins, and they, they truly do want to stop doing it. Other people are in certain sins that they don't want to stop doing. They're enjoying. So there's the sins of pleasure, there's the sins of bondage, but ultimately both are bondage, whether people recognize it that way or not. But what Jesus is calling, what he's requiring, what he delivers and brings is a 180 degree change, complete change of direction. And what repentance truly looks like is when possible, and it's not always possible, but when possible, once someone has repented and come to the Lord, they will go back and make things right wherever they can. This doesn't always feel good when you're a born-again believer, because God starts to knock on your heart. Hey, uh, remember so-and-so? You need to go say you're sorry. Hey, remember so-and-so that you stole from? You need to go back and make that right. Hey, so-and-so that you said, get out of my life or whatever and I hate you, you're going to have to go back and tell them that was the old you. It's not easy. It is swallowing our flesh, a big gulp, but the Holy Spirit will help us to do these things. It's to really look and come to the Lord with a brokenness over sin. Isaiah 66, 2 says, But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit. God will never despise or reject a contrite spirit. If our heart is soft, say, Lord, what? I'm just sorry. What else could Zacchaeus say? He couldn't defend his actions of life, but just to say, Lord, you mean you would actually invite me to join you? Actually, Jesus invited himself to join Zacchaeus' house. He didn't. He said, I'm going to your house today for lunch. I know you can afford it. I know you've got the servants. I know you've got a big meal waiting for you already, but I'm going to come, and you're going to learn from me what you need to do. You know what's interesting about the work of God in our life? You know, missionaries have found this around the world where they've seen people get saved and without ever hearing verses, they start to do certain things that are the marks of repentance without anyone telling them. Who told you to go back and say you're sorry for hitting your spouse? Uh, I just felt I should do it. That's the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Who told you you should go back and tell your boss, look, I, I, I really haven't been doing uh, my best work, and I apologize for that. I want to start to do... What are these things that, that people after salvation know to do what's the Holy Spirit even. But then as we read and study the Word, we see even more. But the, word of the, uh, the, the work of the Lord will begin to work in a life immediately. Our life becomes about pleasing the Lord and living for others. This means uh, making amends wherever and whenever possible. See, the law called for restitution. Now, he immediately is so flooded with the peace of God that he's like, money no longer has the magnetic attraction to him. So he says, I'm going to give half of all I have to the poor. Now, you might say, well, that's easy. He's got a lot of money. If I had a lot of money, I'd give half of it to the poor. Would you? Really? How many people do you know that have money, Christian and unsaved, wake up one day and say, I'm giving half of everything I own to the poor? I don't know many. But there, there are stories like that. You want to read about uh, guys like um, C.T. Studd? Yes, there are people that have done it, and there are people that continue to do it, but they're a slim minority because Jesus said, who, he who is forgiven much will love much, right? Because he had been forgiven much, he loved much. 
There's people that God is knocking their heart and saying, look, you have more than enough. Give it to these missionaries that are serving on foreign fields. Give it to these families that need to be just their lives rebuilt. There's so much opportunity. I, I think sometimes in the American church, if all the American church had the giving hearts that God would have us to have, we would clean up problems like you would not believe. Our missionaries, is that true or not? But here and around the world, I mean, I think it's less than, what, 1% of all church giving goes to global missions? But not only that, there's, there's just tons and tons of needs, and people, i got to get the next phone, and the phone after that, and the phone after that, and all these kind of things. But Zacchaeus, none of that stuff mattered. He's like, right out of the gate, half of what I have goes to the poor, and he does it. But beyond that, he starts thinking, the Holy Spirit's working, the wheels are moving, not only half of what I have goes to the poor, but I also need to fix what I've made a mess in. Because the poor is not, he didn't create all the poor people. You understand that, right? When you give to some things, we're not, there were poor people before you and I were born. It's the compassion of Jesus why we care to give to that. But then there are situations where we personally were the problem. He personally stole from people. He personally defrauded people. And he recognized, say, hey, in those situations, I'm going to restore fourfold. If I took $100, they didn't have dollars then, but you know what I mean. If I took $100, they're getting 400 That's a pretty good ROI. You will not ever see um, you know, a person who is not a follower of Christ volunteering to restore fourfold. You know, when companies are found doing something dishonest, they put every attorney they have on to fight against it. They don't say, oh yeah, you caught us. We'll restore fourfold. Not likely, but he does. The law of restitution, um, for uh, something that was stolen, was plus 20%. So if, there was, if, someone, if someone had taken something from somebody else under the law, and they willingly came and confessed it. Hey, Moses, I defrauded my neighbor of his grain. That confession, they would repay it back plus 20%. That's what the law required. If they willingly confessed to theft. Someone caught stealing, and they just were caught with it. And then when they're caught, they say, you caught me. They would restore twofold or double. And finally, someone who is stealing essential things from other people with no remorse and no pity they got this condemnation of fourfold. Do you notice that Zacchaeus levies on himself the highest possible judgment under the law because he was that grateful for what the lawgiver had just given him, which was mercy. He willingly imposes this maximum of restitution. This is someone who is truly sorry for how they've hurt other people and sinned against God. You know, I've talked, I've, over the years I've talked to couples and you know, one couple will say, yeah, but they hurt me like this. The other, well, they hurt me like this. If you're truly repentant, you don't care about what they did. You're going to make your own restitution. Amen? That's what real repentance looks like. This is also someone who not only desires to make restitution, not only sorry for the way they've hurt someone else, but someone that truly desires real reconciliation, real healing of relationships, and, and this is the most important, they desire the blessing and favor of God on their life. If you want the blessing and favor of God in your life, make restitution whenever and wherever possible. And we'll be the beneficiary because we're the ones that then have better relationships anyway. The intention of his life is now to be a giver, not a taker. And who is the ultimate giver? Jesus. Be like his master. No longer thinking no longer dominated by greed and covetousness, but dominated by giving and compassion. Martin Luther said about repentance, he said, to do so no more is the truest repentance. To do so no more is the truest repentance. Says, I've repented from that, and they continue to do the same thing. There's not been repentance. I'm still stealing, I'm still greedy, I'm still this. you got to get... You really need to get on, the knee, on your knees at Calvary, have real repentance. Scott Meadows said, both gratitude for God's past and current mercies, as well as hope-filled expectations of his future mercy, are the strongest motives to live for his glory. 
Gratitude for the mercy of God is a motivation to live for his glory. If you're thankful for God, you know, calling you down out of a tree, so to speak, say, I'm going to be with you and you with me, it's a great motivation to stay living for God's glory. Let's close with this last point, reassured. We looked at repentance just before, reassured. So Jesus says to him, you know, Zacchaeus uh, repents and gives uh, the Lord uh, really his heart and says, everything I've had, half my goods, uh, anything I've taken uh, by false accusation, I've restored fourfold. All these marks of repentance, the joy that he comes down with, the willingness to go back and make things right. In verse 9 and 10, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Now he's at the home of Zacchaeus at this house because he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. When Jesus tells you you're a son of Abraham, what a word of reassurance. To hear Jesus literally say in the presence of anyone, you are a son of Abraham. He's speaking spiritually here because Paul in Romans chapter 4, 16 tells us that all those who are in Christ are of the spiritual seed of Abraham. Remember the, uh, the rich man in hell, he looks up and he sees Lazarus in what? Abraham's bosom. This is a picture that true salvation were the spiritual seed of Abraham. Now Zacchaeus has no doubt been called many things in his lifetime. Especially by the religious leaders. But son of Abraham was not one of the things. They called him things, but not son of Abraham, if you know what I mean. It was not something that he was referred to as. The name Zacchaeus, or Zacchai in the Hebrew, it means righteous or innocent. Isn't that interesting? His birth-given name meant innocent or righteous. He was not living that way at all. Not at all. At the end of the day, Christian... What Jesus says of us and what he says about us is all that really matters. Isn't that true? What he says about us is all that really matters. Jesus, he goes home with Zacchaeus. He enters his home, something the Jews would have never done. They would have not stepped one foot in his house. They thought it was a vile, condemned place. And Zacchaeus brings Jesus home, but Jesus is going to be bringing Zacchaeus home. Isn't that great? Because Zacchaeus brings Jesus into his house, but Jesus has really now invited him into the Father's house. All that will come later. We kind of see the picture there. Jesus' vote of confidence, his endorsement, his reassurance is the only thing we need to focus on, fellow believer. His vote of confidence, his reassurance. People are always looking for everyone else's vote of confidence. Look for God's vote of confidence and let God take care of the rest. You'll automatically not step on people's toes, at least not intentionally. You'll actually be gracious. You'll be loving. They won't always like who you are because that's Christ in you. When we seek his approval, Jesus only sought to please the Father. That was his life. The radical change that Zacchaeus may have seen in others, people would now see in him. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Zacchaeus could feel the newness happening in his life. Those of you remember when he got sick, you could feel the newness coming in. You could feel the newness of the Holy Spirit changing you, changing your mind, changing the way you act. I mentioned earlier the question asked by the German philosopher Schleimacher. I can't believe I said it all three times correctly. I thought for sure I'd mangle that. But anyway, remember the question that was asked to him, who are you? If you were to ask that Zacchaeus that same question after Jesus had entered his life, this is what he might say. I am Zacchaeus. My name now means what I really am because I've been forgiven. I'm now a son of Abraham. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm a formerly greedy man now glowing with joy and contentment. He found what he could never buy, what he could never steal, he found acceptance by the Son of Man and the Son of God. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you this morning that you came on a rescue mission for us. Lord, we don't deserve acceptance into your kingdom, 
into your love. We don't deserve the forgiveness of sin. We don't deserve the work of the cross and salvation, but we're so thankful for it. And Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning. And even those of us that know you as Lord and Savior, Lord, we're sorry for the resistance that is still in our own life. Lord, some of the covetousness or greed that we still deal with, we ask, Lord, that not only would you cleanse us and forgive us, but Lord, just take us past those things that we would be selfless and giving as you are. See the needs of others more than ourselves, Lord, that we would be those that are given a cup of water in your name. And whatever, Lord, we can do to make things right, we go and make those things right for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of salvation, for the sake of, Lord, you changing and ministering in the lives of those that otherwise, Lord, may be hindered even by our own walk. And so we ask for that work in our life. And as we, before we come to a close, and I gave a uh, call last week, I'm gonna, I'll give it again. And if you're here today and you say, hey, I, I, can, emp- I, I can relate to Zacchaeus. I relate, relate to maybe the emptiness. I relate to maybe the guilt. I relate to maybe the, uh, the just kind of lack of what am I really supposed to be doing with my life? Why am I, why am I even, why was I even born? What is my f- purpose? Am I, am I going to go to heaven? If you, any of those questions, Zacchaeus maybe had them all, but you know what's interesting about Jesus that's so different than us? Zacchaeus doesn't appear in the text to ask a single question, and just one look into Jesus' face, they were all answered. Wow. I, can, I always feel like I come up a million miles short in every message of conveying something that's in my mind. And I know this much, the Holy Spirit can convey things I did not even say. Isn't that great? If you're here this morning and say, I, I don't know why I think it, but I think I need to give my life to the Lord. Just come stand right here at this altar. Just bow our heads for a moment. Just come down here. Uh, it, trust me, if you feel that way, it has nothing to do with me or anyone around you. It has everything that the Holy Spirit revealing to you. No one said anything to Zacchaeus. Jesus said, just come down. And at that moment, I believe he instantly realized, I need salvation. I need to listen to everything this man says. I need to follow him. And everything else, chains fall off. Internal work of the Holy Spirit begins and salvation is ignited in his life. If that's you, just come down. Stand right here at this altar. We'll pray with you. Don't worry about what other people think. Like Zacchaeus, if you have to run and skip, do it. You don't have to climb a tree or anything. We, we, it's right here, ground level. I did this in 1995. Me and my wife on the same day. Heart was pounding out of my chest. What will people think? And then I didn't care. I'm like, I, I'm getting saved one way or another. If God will take me, that was my thought. If he's willing to take me, I will come. Guess what? He's willing to take you. I'm going to pray just for a moment.